Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Father, you said that our days are like grass, like the flower of a field. You said it's like a vapor that appears for a moment and is gone. But thank you that you who created us has loved us with an everlasting love. Thank you that in the Lord Jesus, you have not dealt with us as our sin so justly deserves, but you've shown compassion and you've shown mercy. You've put in our name in the Lamb's Book of Life. You've put the Holy Spirit in us. You've sealed us with him for the day of redemption. Oh, Father, we bless you today for the many, many benefits that we have. We know that your wrath someday will express itself in a way that people can't even imagine. Your word teaches that. And so we ask that in this day that we would be faithful with the gospel, faithful to share it even in this new week. Father, if we had no one last week, may this week be different. If we told no one last week, give us an opportunity this week. Help us to go and, as your word says, to make converts believers of all peoples. Thank you that we can come on the first day of the week as your word instructs, that as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Thank you for the encouragement our heart finds through the body of Christ. And thank you for the opportunity to bow and worship you corporately. Thank you for the worship through the word of God. And as we open it, we ask our hearts would be open, that we would indeed be teachable, that we would listen as this were our last sermon ever to hear that with a sense of expectancy that you might have freedom to take your word and sanctify us in the truth which you say is truth. We thank you for it. So help me, Father. Fill me, anoint me, and use me that Jesus might be lifted up. And I ask it in his holy and righteous name. Amen. Would you take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 3. Most people can find at least the first book of the Bible and the last book, Genesis and Revelation, but most Americans cannot pronounce the title of this book correctly. It's not the book of Revelations. It's the book of Revelation. It's a single revelation that is given to Jesus Christ that John records for us. Now listen, if we're not living in the time frame that is described in this book, we are certainly living on the threshold of that time frame. So many of the pieces of the puzzle that will be laid before the second coming are being laid in our lifetime. Think about it. Many sitting in this room 
during their lifetime. They've witnessed the rebirth of the nation of Israel. They've seen Russia rise as a world power, and the Bible mentions specifically Russia as a nation that will come into the Middle East and hate the Israeli people. We have seen the rise of a sodomite lifestyle. We've seen a growing moral bankruptcy, both in America and around the world. And God, like a a jigsaw puzzle, is beginning to fit the pieces together. And so in the coming months, I think, I hope you will get the overall picture of this book so that you can understand its movements and how it relates to our life. It sounds like you've found it. We want to begin in Revelation chapter 3 this morning, and we're going to pick up in verse 7 where we left off last time. Follow along in your Bible. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God in my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, for the benefit of those joining us for the first time, let me establish the context of our passage we've seen that one of the critical keys to properly understanding and applying the book of Revelation is to honor the structure that God gave us. And so God gave John the Apostle a commission to write this book. But not only did he give him that commission in Revelation 119, he gave him the outline of the book. And so if you remember in 119, therefore write the things which you have seen and the things which are, the things which will take place after these things. And when you read the book of Revelation, it becomes crystal clear that that is precisely the outline for the book. In chapter 1, all the way until the 20th verse, he describes the things which you have seen. Today, we are in the second section of the book, the things that are, that when John writes in 95 A.D., He writes about things that were true right then at that moment concerning seven churches there in Asia. And then when we come to chapters 4 through 22, he will describe the future, the things which will take place. So right now we're in that section concerning the things that are. The present time when Christ addresses seven churches that were in existence in John's day. And what you read concerning the assessment of these churches is important because there's a common phrase that accompanies each church. Here in verse 13, concerning Philadelphia, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What's rather interesting is that the assessment that each church is given is somewhat surprising. A few thought they weren't doing that well when Jesus actually said, you're doing great. 
And then there were some churches that thought they were doing great, and in reality, they weren't doing all that well. And that's kind of humbling. And that's why we must listen to what Christ says and what his assessment is of us corporately as a church and what his assessment of us as individuals are. Now, the problems that they face are problems that we face, and they're problems that any church can face. He speaks of what the Spirit says to the churches, not the church, but the churches, all seven churches, and by extension, every church. Just like when we read the letter of Paul to the Romans, we recognize it's not just for the Romans, it's for us. And even so, these seven epistles... It's really not 21 letters in the New Testament. That's what most people think. There's actually 28, right? There's the 21 letters in the New Testament plus these seven letters found within the book of Revelation. Now, we learned from some of these churches that um, Christ was either pleased or displeased. There's typically an introduction concerning himself. There's a commendation or a rebuke or both. Remember the church in Ephesus? You might want to look back. In the opening of chapter 2, that was a church that had left its first love. They were orthodox in what they believed, but they had left. It's one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. Not that they had lost their first love. You don't lose your first love. You leave it. It's a willful, conscious decision that you made. And so they were sound in doctrine, but they were low on devotion. Then we studied Christ's letter to the church in Smyrna. It's only one of two churches in which he gives praise, no rebuke at all. This was a church, Smyrna, that was willing to suffer and be persecuted for their faith. And they were right in the middle of God's will as a suffering church. Then we came to the church at Pergamum. Remember them? Or Pergamos, depending on how you want to spell the original. It, can, it was a church that had compromised. It was a church that basically had tolerated false doctrine in the church. Thyatira also taught us, the church at Thyatira next, that you can be true in one realm and wrong in another realm. And that typically compromise in one area will lead to compromise in other areas. That's not only true corporately of a church, but it's true also individually. So in the 1980s, when a lot of mainline denominations began to compromise a simple doctrine on the role of women in the church, now they've compromised everything. They've thrown the whole Bible out. You start slow in one area, and it will grow like a cancer. Then if you were here last time, we looked at the church at Sardis. That was a church that was basically asleep at the wheel. They had an impressive past, but they were not promised an effective future unless some things changed. They had kind of a ho-hum attitude. They had the appearance of being a great church, but from Christ's perspective, it was not a great church. Now, don't miss it. Like the other 21 New Testament letters, these seven letters are not simply for them, but for us. It's not simply for people who lived in the first century, but people who live in the 21st century. And it's possible to be like the church at Ephesus, where you lose your love. It's possible for us as a church or us individually to be like the church at Smyrna, a church of great faithfulness. It's possible to be like the church at Pergamum, a church with really rotten doctrine. And so on and on we can go. And again, he who has an ear, let him hear what he says to the churches. 
So as a corporate body and individually, we need to listen very carefully as we come this morning to this sixth church, the church in Philadelphia. And I've titled this morning's message, A Church That God Could Use. I suppose we could say an individual that God could use as well. And uh, this church is a faithful church, as I'm terming it. With each of the churches, I've given you a title. Some of you have written them down. Some of you asked me, they, they said, I missed it last week. And I said, I said it, you just missed it. But I'm glad you're eager to learn. And I'm just thrilled to see people taking notes that you're hungry. You know, when someone sits there like this, their arms are up like this, and they're not even looking at their Bible, it shouts by your body language, apathy. You don't want to be a ho-hum, apathetic Christian. I hope you're passionate for Jesus, and I hope you love Him with all of your heart. Now, I don't know about you, but if there was one church that I would want Community Bible Church to be like, if I had to pick just one, it'd be this church, the church at Philadelphia. It's a church that has God's blessing on it, and it's one of the two churches that Jesus gives no rebuke but only a commendation. And so we're thinking about the kind of church that God can use. And there are three principles that are underscored here in our text. The first concerns the church and her master, the church and her master. Notice how the epistle opens into the angel. We saw that's the pastor, not a literal angel. We looked at it contextually earlier in our study. The pastor, what today we might call the senior pastor, It's not denying a plurality of elders, but there's always a leader amongst equals to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? Now, let's go back to the map here for a moment. As you can see on the map, there is an address that Jesus gives to seven churches, and uh, it's carried uh, these letters like in a horseshoe pattern. We started in Ephesus. I called it the formal church. Because, again, they were high on doctrine, but they were low on devotion. They had left their first love. From there, we went another 35 miles up the road to the church at Smyrna. I called it the fearful church because Jesus commands them, don't fear. They were being persecuted, beaten up, and he says, don't fear. Just keep doing what you're doing. From there, we left another 50 miles up the road, and we went to the church at Pergamum or Pergamos, and I called it the faltering church. They were compromising God's truth. From there, we went another 40 miles from Pergamum to the church at Thyatira. It was a false church. They were corrupted by false doctrine. Then we went another 30 miles last week, if you were here, and we came to the church at Sardis, and we called it a fruitless church. They had kind of a ho-hum spirit. And some people have that same attitude in their lives. I'm just a ho-hum kind of Christian. I'm here because it's Sunday, and I'm supposed to be but maybe if there was a better choice, I wouldn't be here. Now, as I think about these churches, let's pause for a moment as we have with each church and talk about what the city was like in the first century. Because very often, we're influenced by what's happening around us. And of course, that's the exhortation, Romans 12, 1 and 2, not to be shaped by the world's mold. So we live in a place in South Carolina, and the influences here might be a little different from other parts of the world, though we're becoming more and more of a single world nation through the internet and other vehicles. But the place you live in can influence you, and that was certainly true in the first century. And so Jesus addresses each city, each church accordingly. If you remember in Revelation 1-4, 
we are told John to the seven churches that are in Asia. So just remember we're in Asia, not the continent of Asia as we call it today. Uh, that's a term that comes uh, um, centuries later in human history. Asia in the first century was a province. Today, it's Turkey. Sometimes it's referred to as Little Asia or Asia Minor. And of course, Turkey has been in the news this week with, with a major earthquake that is there. Um, this church is also kind of interesting in that it's the newest city out of all seven. Uh, this city had not been established all that long. It was established in 189 BC by a king by the name of Eumenes. King Eumenes came and he conquered this city and he called it Philadelphia. So that's where Philadelphia began. Now, you know the name Philadelphia. There are over 20 cities in the United States that are called Philadelphia. North Carolina, Illinois, Arkansas, Indiana, but probably the most famous, of course, is Pennsylvania. Adelphos, most of you know that word, it means brother, phileo, one of the Greek words for love. And so when we speak of Philadelphia, we're talking about brotherly love. And so the city of brotherly love. And so this king, Amenus, had a brother. His name was Adelus, and he loved his brother. And because he loved his brother, he said, I'll get a city for my brother. And he goes and he conquers the people and says, here, here's your own city. Nice guy. In either case, it was a, a gateway to the east. It was a major trade route, and so it was a very prosperous city. But one of the reasons it's an important city for us as Christians is, is that it was a missionary center, not in the way we're using the word today, but it was a missionary center in terms of spreading the Greek culture. So people would come here, they would be educated and trained in Greek culture, and they would go through the empire and spread the Greek culture. Why is that important? Because God was preparing the world and the fullness of time for his son to come. So after the Greeks came the Romans, as we studied in Daniel. And when the Romans come, there's the Roman pox, the Roman peace. There's a Roman road system that goes throughout the world. All roads literally led back to Rome. But there was a common language, Koine Greek. Just like uh, when you go to a foreign country today and almost anywhere you go, you will find English-speaking people, folks who are bilingual. A hundred years ago, the international language was French. Today, it's English. Well, the international language in this day was Greek, and it made for the spread of the gospel. Now, in 17 AD, before Jesus writes and addresses this group, there was a major earthquake in this city. I mean, the place just tumbled down. So the emperor rebuilt the city, and he renamed it Flavia. Another Caesar, on another occasion when the city collapsed, he rebuilt the city and he called it New Caesar or Neo Caesarea. But the name, for whatever reason, though different emperors would name it after themselves, the name that still stuck in Jesus' day when he writes this letter was the name Philadelphia. But it was nicknamed Little Athens. Now, most of you know Athens, Greece. It's a major city in the Acts of the Apostles. You find Paul up there on Mars Hill preaching on top of a hill where you have the religious center here, the government center here, and the business center here. And he addresses, in essence, Jesus Christ from his worldview that God had given him as an apostle. And so 
Athens is an important city in the first century, and this little Athens basically mimicked that major city. And one of the principal ways it mimicked little of major Athens was through the worship of the false gods that they ascribed to. And so if you go to Athens today, you will find some of the original temples. Most of them, many of them are intact. This place, most of them have crumbled, but there's enough stones left that shout the message of what these people believed in who they worshipped. One of the gods that they magnified in this particular city was a god named Mammon. You've heard the god Mammon. It comes directly into the English language. It was the god of possessions. And there were people who literally worshipped this god. They believed that he was the source of everything they owned. And so they bow down and worship the God of Mammon. Do we have that God here today? Of course we do. Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. We may not call him the God Mammon, but people today worship things. There are some people today who will not be in church and they haven't been in church in years because they worship things and Sunday is just another day to make more money. There was another little god in little Athens. That God's name was Bacchus or Dionysus, another Greek name. The Roman god Bacchus, the Greek name Dionysus. It was the god of wine. Now, if you go to Philadelphia today, it's not called that, but you go there today and you discover that some of the richest soil in the world through a number of volcanoes that they had has made an ideal place to grow grapes. And so the people said we were blessed with rich soil, We're blessed with the ability to grow vineyards, so we will worship the God of alcohol, the God of wine. Do we have that God in America today? Of course we do. Billions of dollars are spent paying homage to this God, advertising this God. We may not have a temple like they did in little Athens, but we sometimes have our own little temples in our homes or what we call bar rooms. Another god in little Athens found amongst the ruins that the people worshipped was the god Aphrodite or the god Venus. This is the goddess of licentiousness and sex. And they literally had temples where they would go in and as part of the worship service commit acts of fornication and adultery. You say, do we have that god today in America? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a whole pornographic empire that's built around that goddess. And millions of Americans give their affections to that goddess weekly through the internet, through television, through movies they download, movies that are filled with sensuality. Another god in that particular place called Little Athens or Philadelphia was Sophia. Most of us know the word Sophia. Uh, It refers to wisdom. And so this was the goddess of learning. Uh, And of course, when uh, we learn according to God's way, then it's a positive wisdom. But the wisdom of this world, the scripture says, is foolishness to God. You say, do we have that God in America today? Absolutely. We dishonor our God in the day that we live in. We have these places called universities. And so many of them, their Bible is a science textbook, their utopia is some earth they're trying to create or some tree they're trying to hug, and, and it's all phony and it's all fake and it's all contrary 
to the revelation of Scripture, and it's capturing a generation. And so if a young person is not grounded in the Scriptures, by the time they go to the average university in America, their heart is a million miles away. Conversion must happen first, but more than conversion, they must be taught truth. So make no mistake, what I want you to see is this is the atmosphere that a church was born in. And this is the atmosphere they functioned in. But it did not function the health of this local church we call Philadelphia. So as we think about the church and her master, let's first think about the master's attributes. We must learn something of his attributes. Verse 7 opens, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, has the key of David, who opens... And no one will shut, and who shuts, and no one opens, says this. Now remember, in each of the seven letters, we dipped back into chapter 1. We saw that description of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he took descriptions of himself, and he applied them accordingly to the need, either negative or positive, as it related to a specific church. And some of you took my challenge in the early weeks, and you went back, and you tried to match up Where does it come from in Revelation 1? What church does he apply it to? And those of you who did that discovered that there was one church, namely this church, the church in Philadelphia, who did not have a commendation that came out of the first chapter. He gives them a special commendation that's not found in chapter 1, and rightly so, because this church is so unique. And so Jesus describes himself as the one who is holy and true, or more literally, he who is the holy and the true. The article is found both before the word holy and before the word true and original. It doesn't read real smooth in English when you do that, but it's important. When God, by the Spirit of God, inspires a word, he inspires it for a purpose. He is described as the holy and the true. Now, I underscore this because one of the great titles for God throughout all the Old Testament of the Father is He is the Holy One. You might want to circle out in the margin of your Bible if it's there, Isaiah 40, verse 25, or just write it, to whom then will you liken me that I would be His equal, says the Holy One. When God asks that question, he is saying there is absolutely no one that you can even begin to compare me to. I have no equals, says the Holy One. Now, that's a title for God Almighty, and yet it is a title that the Lord Jesus ascribes to himself here in this, this letter to this church. He is not simply, though, holy and true. He is the holy and the true one. He is like the Father, and if there's anything that will capture you when you step into glory, it will be the absolute holiness of God. Jesus in Hebrews 7 is described as a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He's without blemish. He's absolutely perfect. So when the Bible says Christ died for sins, 1 Peter 3, and he was sinless, then the only way to understand his death is substitutionary in nature. He had no sin. He was dying for nothing he had done. He was dying for us. And so Peter writes, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, the righteous 
for the unrighteous. Peter has already said in 1 Peter 2.22 that Christ committed no sin. And so Scripture paints him as sinless. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, he knew no sin. 1 John says, in him there is no sin. Hebrews 4 says, he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. You say, how do we know? Because in the Old Testament, the prophets wrote that when God would become a man, you would know it was really, truly God in a human body because not only would he die, be pierced through for our iniquity, not only would he be buried, and there's typology and specific prophecies that relate to all of these, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. And so Romans 1.4 calls the resurrection a declaration calls it an announcement. God announces that Jesus is God in human flesh by the resurrection. He's the first one to be resurrected from the dead, not the first to be raised to life. Seven people are raised to life in the Bible only to die again. Jesus is the first ever to be resurrected to life in a forever body, demonstrating his sinlessness. And so the scripture says, death is no longer master over him. And so if I asked you the question this morning, do you believe Jesus is sinless? What I'm really asking you is, do you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? But please notice beyond the righteousness of our king, there is the rightness of this king. Not only is he the holy one, he is the true one. He is saying in this verse, I am the holy one and I am the true one. Now, the Greek word here for truth carries the the connotation of being genuine, of being authentic, of being the opposite of fake. He is the true one, which means because he is true, because he is absolutely right in everything that he is, he's worthy of our trust this morning. Now, Jesus said, and if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. If we will lift up the Lord Jesus, the one who is the holy one and the true one, when men begin to see Jesus for who he is, God will use our declaration, our proclamation to bring them to himself. He is the holy one. He is the true one. And so the Bible teaches that God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. That's why we just baptize these five people, not in the names, but in the name singular, and the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that God is Father, God is Son, God is Spirit. Or you could say Jehovah the Father, Jehovah the Son, or Jehovah the Spirit, or more specifically and probably more accurately, you could say Yahweh the Father, Yahweh the Son. And for those who are with me in the Course on Pneumatology, we saw Yahweh the Spirit. The the Spirit of God is also called Yahweh the Lord. So there are many ways all the way through the scripture to demonstrate the deity of Christ. But I'll tell you, as you read through the revelation, by implication, by direct statement, all the way through from the first chapter to the last chapter, you will find more affirmations for the deity of Jesus Christ in this book than in any other. That's why people love to attack Revelation, and they say that John was just an old senile man who was confused and all balled up. So when we think about the church and her master, we must first learn of his attributes. Secondly, we must also marvel at his authority. He has authority, and you see that authority expressed here in verse 7. 
to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Now, what precisely does that mean? Now, remember, we've already noted there are hundreds of allusions to the Old Testament woven all the way through the Revelation. You might want to put out in the margin, or you can, it's in the New American Standard footnotes, just circle, if you have the NASB with footnotes, circle Isaiah 22.22, Isaiah 22.22. That's where this particular allusion comes from. One of the challenges for a lot of Christians in the 21st century, especially in a day of virtual total biblical illiteracy due to the seeker movement and its effects on evangelicalism, is people no longer know their Bibles. And if there's one part of the Bible they certainly don't know, it's the Old Testament. Or maybe the Psalms and Proverbs will be marked up a little bit, but for the most part, the Old Testament is the clean section of their Bible. And yet of the 404 verses found in the Revelation, there's 300 specific allusions to the Old Testament. You'll hear some say six, seven, eight hundred, and you can find the same allusion in different books and double count them, but there's 300 allusions. That's 75% of the book of Revelation is embedded and woven through the Old Testament. And never once in the Revelation does he say, well, David said, or Isaiah the prophet said, it's just said and you have to search it on your own. And so this is a very important phrase that Jesus is using, and it's rooted from Isaiah chapter 22. Now, I'll let you go home and read that chapter of Scripture this afternoon, but let me just briefly relate it. There was a man by the name of Eliakim who is given the key to the house of David, or another way of saying that, and some translations say the key to his treasury. It's kind of interpretive, but that's the thought. He is given the key to the house of David. Now, in Isaiah chapter 22, there's an official by the name of Shibna, and Shibna is basically the administrator. He is the uh, chief of staff under David's kingdom, but he's not a faithful steward. In fact, he turns out to be a scam artist. And so the Lord pronounces judgment on this man, Shebna, and God raises up a man by the name of Eliakim to take his place. And he says there, I will set the key of the house of David on his, Eliakim's, shoulder. That meant that Eliakim had the checkbook to the kingdom. He is the one who would open the door for people to be given funds from David's treasury, and he is the one that would shut the door. Now, no doubt, Jesus quotes this Old Testament passage and applies it to himself because he wants the church in Philadelphia to understand that he has all of the resources available to them in his hands. And so as the Lord God, as Yahweh, has the keys to the treasurer's house, he is able this morning to supply all of your needs according to his riches. Now, I remember reading some years ago of a missionary who in the early part of the 20th century I was going overseas actually to India. India has mentioned the Bible, you know that. Some of my Indian friends remind me of that, you know. He was going to India, and as he boarded the gang plaque to go overseas, a close friend of his handed him a sealed envelope. It was a thick envelope. And he said, now I want to give you this, and I want you to open this envelope. If all of your resources have been exhausted... You've tried every possible way in which to meet those needs. And if no one else can meet that need and you see no other way, then open the envelope. That missionary graciously took it, thanked him. 22 years later, he came back. 
and he handed his friend who is still alive the sealed envelope. He said, never, ever did I come to the place in my life where God did not meet the needs. Listen, I am so grateful that the Lord Jesus has the keys. And I believe that the Lord Jesus wants us to know that if we are good stewards, both personally and corporately, that we will never lack his resources. You know, when a church says, if we only had such and such, or if, uh, or if we only had such and such a building, or if we only had so and so much money, we could do this or that. Because we don't, we can't do it. That's an insult to God Almighty. If you know the one who has the keys to the Father's storehouse, then God will meet our needs. Now, if we're poor stewards, many times God doesn't entrust more to us than He is able to give to us. But if you are a good steward and you are looking in faith, as King David said in Psalm 37, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. And as Paul said, I already quoted, and my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So please know that when the cause is righteous because he is holy, when the cause is right because he is true, then you can know that you will be taken care of. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, he was holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who has the key of David. That's an important phrase. Who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Now, if you know the prophet Isaiah, then you know that one of the things that Isaiah the prophet does is he underscores the truth that Messiah will come from the household of David. Mary was told that at the very birth of Jesus when she was pregnant. She said, your son someday will sit on the throne of David. He's yet to do that but he's going to, just as God promised. And so the key of David comes through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and eventually God narrows the scope and he brings the Messiah through this Davidic covenant. He was holy and true who has the key of David. Jesus is not saying here that he has the key of David and he simply has the ability to open and close the door. Jesus is saying far more than that. He is saying, I do open the door and sometimes I do close the door. And because he is holy and true, you can know that he will never, ever, ever make a mistake. He will never use the key for a false cause, and he will never give the key to someone who is propagating an untruth. He uses the key in a way that is holy, and he uses the key in a way that is true. In fact, the key is expanded. We've already studied one dimension of the keys that he holds. Remember in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18, and this is important if we're thinking about the resources of God. There he said, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. So the promise that he gives here in Revelation 3 and verse uh, 7 is in reference to save people. So it's important that you are saved, that you are born again, because the one who holds the key to the treasury of God is also the one who holds the key to heaven and hell. He can unlock heaven and he can lock hell and he can lock hell and unlock heaven because he is absolutely authoritative. In addition to his attributes that we must learn, his authority that we should marvel over, also think about we must yield to his appraisal. What matters is his appraisal. Not yours, not mine, but his And so the omniscient Christ begins verse 8 with these words, I know your deeds. Some of your translations say, I know your works. Same thing. 
He knows everything that we are doing, how we are doing it, and what our mouths and motives are saying when we do it. He looks at every action and every word. He knows. He knows everything. And some of us, we might even worship a little bit differently on a Sunday if we thought of the reality that the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good, that we are laid naked and bare before him before whom we have to do. We saw in Revelation 1 that he walks amongst the lampstands and he defined the lampstands for us as the churches. The Lord Jesus is present here this morning in a way that he is different present in other places. There's a special presence of the Lord when God's people are assembled together. And not only is Jesus here, the angels of God are here. You can't see him, but the audience is much larger here than you realize. And if we thought for a moment that the Lord Jesus is watching us, even the way we worship, even our service would be different. And so the eyes of the Lord are in every place. God is watching his people. I know your deeds. He sees everything we do. He sees why we do what we do. And it's important to him. Now, beyond the church and her master, let's think for a moment as we consider the kind of church God can use, the church and her ministry, the church and her ministry, and by extension, our ministry, because again, he's not just speaking to the church at Philadelphia, but the churches, that means us. And so he unfolds three truths to this church. First, their ministry involved opportunities. It involved opportunities. That's clear here in verse eight. I know your deeds. Behold, I put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, the image of open and closed doors is found elsewhere in the New Testament. You see it often, for instance, in the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. Do you remember that occasion on his second missionary journey? Paul leaves Antioch of Syria and he makes his way across what today we call the continent of Asia. And he's uh, bound and determined to have ministry there. And he goes north and God's spirit shuts the door. He goes south and God shuts the door. And all these shut doors all the way. And he comes all the way to the end of the continent of Asia. And he has a vision from a man over in Macedonia while he's asleep at night. and, and, And the man says, please come, come over and help us. And Paul begins to see that God closed these other doors And he opened this door, and so Paul goes over to the city called Philippi, preaches the gospel, and for the first time in the history of humanity, people in Western Europe hear the gospel. And it becomes very strategic because for the next thousand years, Western Europe becomes the center of Christianity and the launching pad to bring the gospel to the rest of the world. Now, we want to be a local church. I hope you do that looks for open doors. And when God opens those doors, we walk through those doors. Because when God opens the door, the devil can't shut it. And I am so encouraged, let me say parenthetically here, of your response to the Bakuna people, a people who do not have a single verse of Scripture in their language. And you've already completed the book of Jonah, the book of Ruth, and we crossed the 50% mark last week from the book of Genesis. And many of you live streaming have gone, 64 people were live streaming last week and they're live streaming, praise the Lord, in different parts of the country and other foreign countries went online and, and adopted a verse of scripture. And I thank God for that. And I received a text message last night, which was Sunday morning, his time, 
of our world missions pastor who is in ministry today visiting the Bakuna people. It's very, very exciting. And so that's a door that God has opened. God has given us that chance to spread the gospel. Now, understand, though, that when God opens a door, He doesn't do it just accidentally. I feel like He does it based on certain preconditions. That's what this verse says. Look at it again. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because... You have a little power, and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, some English translations break the one continuous thought into two thoughts in order to make it a little bit more readable. And that's unfortunate because it's actually one continuous thought in the original. In other words, there's a cause effect here that it worked. And so the church at Philadelphia had an open door from Jesus Christ because they had fulfilled certain preconditions. The open door in their deeds, which Jesus just said he knew, are inseparably linked together. And so we are told that they had a little power because the little power is connected to three things. They kept his word, they had not denied his name, and the text equally uh, says that they were not ashamed of him. So follow it. Let me give it in reverse order. Number one, they were dedicated to the Word of God. That's one reason God gave them an open door. They were dedicated to the Word of God. Number two, they were dedicated to the Son of God. And number three, they were empowered by the Spirit of God. And because of those three truths that were true of this church corporately, which meant it was true of most of the people individually, Jesus gave them this open door. Now, let's think our way through that for a moment. He said, you've kept my word. They were dedicated to the Word of God. The Bible was their authority. The Bible was their guide. And we have seen that it is the Word of God that brings about not only the new birth, but spiritual growth. And so if you're looking for a church for short sermons, you're in the wrong place. We are here worshiping God in truth. We're here to learn the Bible because it is life-changing and it will prepare you not only for eternity, but to live a godly life now. Number two, they had not denied my name. That is to say, they weren't ashamed of Jesus, and I hope you're not. We're not ashamed of Jesus. We're not ashamed that we are an evangelistic church, that we are wanting to bring men and women and boys and girls to faith in Jesus Christ. Because without him, it is a Christless eternity that is never ending. And number three, they were activated by the Spirit of God. These were people who had the Spirit of God released in their life. There was power. In fact, notice in verse 8, Jesus says you have a little power. Do you see that? You should underline that. They have a little power. You say, that sounds like a put-down. It's not. The word power is the word dunamis. We get our English word dynamite. It's describing God's spiritual dynamic. And God did what he did for this church, not because of their great programs, He did what he did in in the church at Philadelphia, not because they were so smart, not because of their great financial resources, not because of their great numbers. Those things don't impress God. He did what he did because they were available to him. They were available to the Spirit of God, wanting to, to wear him like a suit of clothes. And you've heard me say it many times that God is not looking for people of great ability, but great availability. 
And so the Philadelphia church had a little power because they had discovered to some degree the power of the Holy Spirit. And of course, the Holy Spirit is infinite as the Father is and as the Son. And uh, if he gave us too much power, we'd probably pop. But listen, little is much when you're talking about God at work in a life. So they had a little power because they had kept his word, because they had not denied his name. And so there's this cause-effect relationship. Now, there's the church and her opportunities, but also think with me, the ministry that involved opposition. They had not only opportunity, a ministry of opportunity, but they had a ministry of opposition. We read now in verse 9, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Now, sometimes when God opens a door of opportunity, it will swing on a door of adversity. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, for a wide door for effective service is open to me and there are many adversaries. We studied in the book of Daniel that the people who know their God will display strength and take action. But with that power and with that open door and with that action often comes opposition. And listen, there's no lazy way, there's no cheap way to serve God. Some Christians are not being used of God because they're lazy. I mean, I'm not being unkind, I'm just being truthful. There's no cheap way, no easy way, no lazy way to serve God. And sometimes when you serve the living God, with it comes opposition. And so this church was no exception. This is probably the greatest of all seven. And yet he says, behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say, here's a testimony they give, who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet. Now, not everyone was obviously happy with the church in Philadelphia. He speaks here of a group of people that he designates as being a part of the synagogue of Satan. And let me say parenthetically that the true church will often be targeted by people who are unbelievers. And God wants to put some steel in the hearts of these people in Philadelphia and us as well. And as we move to the end of the age and things get more and more wicked and you become more and more distinctly different, then that opposition is going only to increase. When I was a new Christian, I would say, I think it was safe to say that at least the majority, over 50%, that over 50% of the churches in America were good churches. They had the gospel. No more. Now gospel preaching churches have become a minority. And if you're listening to me somewhere in the world today and you are in a good church and people are making fun of you, don't worry, you are in good company. Now, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And some of you are moving this summer. Some of you are going to another city, and you're going to be looking for a good church. And don't always go by what people say. Sometimes the church that they ridicule and speak negatively of is actually the best church in the city that you want to attend. I've learned over the years, people either love us or they absolutely hate us, but there's very little middle ground when it comes to Community Bible Church. And that was true of the church here in this city called Philadelphia. So sometimes a good thing to do is just to listen to what people say. 
Now, I'm not talking about obnoxious people. I'm not talking about, you know, a Westboro Baptist type of church that is just absolutely disgusting and obnoxious, and they are ridiculed, not because they're godly, but because they're godless. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about someone who is living and loving the Lord. And so there's a group of Jews, Jesus said, who claim to be Jews, but they are not. What does that mean? Does it mean that, that they thought they were descendants of Abraham and they were just mistaken about their own identity? Clearly not, because for the most part in that day, Jews did not intermarry. Only 5% of Jews today intermarry. So it's very unusual, and, there, and there's a purpose in that. God has protected the people of Israel. He's kept them a nation because he's going to pull off the second coming of Jesus through these people. So these people were descendants of Abraham. They knew in terms of their nationality that they were descendants of Abraham just as someone from China or India or Iran or Iraq or some other nation of the world knows what their nationality is. That's not what is in view here. But though they were physically descended from Abraham and in that sense they were Jews... They were not Jews and that they did not have what the New Testament calls and what the Old Testament illustrates, the faith of Abraham. Paul will put it in these words in Romans 2. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. And so over and over again, as you study in the Gospels, the public ministry of Jesus, he repeatedly opposed the synagogue of Satan. He encountered various scribes and Pharisees and Herodians who claimed to be Abraham's children, but he will say to them on one occasion, you are of your father, the devil. And so the church in Philadelphia, like many first century churches in the province of Asia, would be comprised of both Jewish born-again believers and Gentiles who are born again. And so the hostility comes from unregenerate Jewish people who oppose their faith in in Joshua, in Yeshua, or in Jesus, as we'd say in English. I will make them, though, he says, follow, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. So how would this happen? How would these anti-Christian Jews bow down in sorrow before these believers in Philadelphia recognizing that they were true, genuine followers? Well, I think what would happen practically is they would see that there was something that they did not possess, something the Scriptures prophesied of that these people definitely had. Now, let, let me say while we're here, In the early days of the church, the church, in terms of a religious group, was opposed by Jewish people. He came to his own, his own received him not. And so if you were not a completed Jew, a born-again Jew, then you would typically oppose Christians and you would go against believers. Now in the 21st century, and it began to change over the centuries, Christians, so-called Christians, oppose Jewish people. And some of the um, theology that has driven this came out of certain reformers like Calvin and Luther, what we call replacement theology. Replacement theology basically says that God is done with the people of Israel, that the church is the new Israel, and there's no significance at all for the Jew, how wrong they are. And it was those seeds that Luther and Calvin planted 
that actually led to the theology in Germany that Hitler used to seek to annihilate some six billion Jews. But what he is saying here is, look, by your changed life, by the different kind of relationship that you have with me, that some of these Jews in the synagogue of Satan who hate you, they're going to actually come down and in sorrow, they're going to love you because you love me. You know, some of you know I have a, a rabbi friend in Jerusalem. In fact, he called me this past week and but I remember a year ago, we were in discussion. He said, Pastor Carl, he calls me Pastor Carl. I call him Rabbi, Rabbi Hanok. We kind of joke. And, and uh, he said, you know, when I came to Community Bible Church, he said, I was treated better at Community Bible Church than any other place I've ever been. And understand, his audiences are worldwide. He travels to multiple nations every year, and it's almost all Jewish people. But what grabbed him and is grabbing him is a distinctly different nature of you as a church, and I thank God for that. And so the promise that Jesus is making here in verse 9 is so is not so much a promise of vindication. This is a promise of encouragement to them. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I, Yeshua, have loved you. Now understand, God loves people in two ways. There's a general sense in which God loves the whole world, for God so loved the world. Uh, There's a general sense in that God loves all that he created. And so the prophet Ezekiel says, God speaking, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But there's another sense in which we as his beloved ones have a unique special relationship and that's what's being taught here. I have loved you. And it's the promise that the prophets wrote about in the Old Testament. For instance, Jeremiah wrote, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they will be my people. God prophesied of a different kind of relationship where the Lord would, in a very real, close, intimate way, love his people. Now, this is a promise, if you know the context, it's repeated in Ezekiel, that is looking at the people of Israel, and it's going to be fulfilled yet in the future in the seven-year tribulation period. Most Jews are going to believe Jesus is Lord. But the New Testament quotes it, not as a complete fulfillment, but a partial fulfillment amongst Jews and Gentiles today that believe. And so Jesus is saying to the church in Philadelphia, when they see your life and they see the different character of your life, some of these unbelieving, hateful Jewish people who oppose you, they're going to come down and, and bow at your feet and recognize that I, the Lord God, have truly loved you. Now, beyond their opportunities and their opposition, let's also think about their ministry that involved a certain outlook, a certain perspective. We read now in verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So the Bible speaks here of this hour of testing that he will keep them from. What's it called? We're going to begin to study it when we come to the sixth chapter. It's called the tribulation period. It's a seven-year period in human history. There has never, ever, ever been in the history of the world a time of tribulation and heartache that has come upon the entire planets. But it is coming. 
And he speaks here of this hour of testing that he will keep those out to test those who dwell on the earth, literally to test earth dwellers. Now, one of the functions of the great tribulation period is for God certainly to show his righteousness, but it will be his final wake-up call for those who've never heard the gospel before to repent. And so when we come to Revelation chapter 7, we will see this great multitude that no one can count that will come to genuine faith in Jesus as Lord. But the phrase earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth, is a certain phrase that's used over and over and over again. We're going to study it over and over again as we work through Revelation of unbelievers, of people who have as their perspective this life only. And God is going to use the time of the tribulation to judge them. Now, the Lord's promise is that he'll keep the church at Philadelphia, and since he's not just writing to a church, but to churches, any church, from this time that is coming on the world. We call it the rapture. Jesus, through Paul, said the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. That's the rapture. He will come, could happen today. Nothing is ever needed to be fulfilled for the rapture to happen. He could come and sweep us off this building and up into heaven in a moment's time. We meet the Lord in the air. That is distinctly different from the second coming where he literally comes to the earth, plants his feet on the Mount of Olives, and he will rule and reign. And the throne that was told Mary that her son would inhabit will be fulfilled for a thousand years. And Jesus is saying in reference to these people, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, meaning you're genuine believers, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. Please note what it does not say. It does not say I will keep you through the hour of testing. It does not say I will keep you in spite of the hour of testing. It does not say I will keep you in the midst of the hour of testing. But I will keep you from the hour of testing. Now, there are some Christians who believe that the church will be here for the great tribulation period. And they think that this hour of testing that we are kept from is the great white throne judgment because in Revelation 20, you discover the great white throne judgment and the only people who are present are unbelievers. And they'll say, well, you'll be kept from that. Well, the problem with that is it doesn't literally interpret the text. He's talking about a time that will come upon the earth. And when you come to Revelation 20 and the great white throne judgment, you discover that the current heaven and earth have been burned with fire, just as 2 Peter 3 teaches. And before God creates the new heaven and the new earth, somewhere out there in eternity, the great white throne judgment takes place. No, there has never been a time like Jesus spoke of when he said there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, the days will be cut short. So in Revelation 3.10, he's saying, I will take you out of, ek, not in, but out of. I will take you out of the tribulation. That is a promise he is making to his church. It's a magnificent promise. Now, if he had wanted to tell them that you will be preserved through the tribulation, he would have used the pronoun in, but he uses the pronoun ek. I will keep you out of this coming time. And another problem with interpreting this to mean that Christ will sustain the church to the tribulation is that many who come to faith during the time of the great tribulation are executed. They're called tribulation saints. And most tribulation saints will lose their heads. 
You know, when a preacher would preach that 20 years ago, some people thought, that can't be real. People won't do that anymore. Oh, we've witnessed it recently, haven't we? Group of people who want to take off the heads of believers and have. It's going to be worldwide, the Bible teaches. You acknowledge Jesus as Lord and refuse Antichrist, you won't have a head for long. And unless those days had been cut short, no one would have survived. Some would say, well, you know, what he's promising here is he'll, he'll keep the church from those plagues that come during the tribulation. But a promise that God will not kill believers through the plagues, but allow the devil through his people kill them is no comfort at all and certainly not what is in view here. Listen, we'll study this in great detail, and it will not be by accident that when we come to chapter 4 all the way through chapter 19, the church will not be mentioned once because the church will be gone. And all the people you will see converted between Revelation 4 and Revelation 19 are people who were left behind, people who had never heard the gospel before in authority and in power. And so in either case, he makes this promise. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. Now, again, if this was a reference to the tribulation, uh, I mean, to our going through the tribulation, then look, this church, they're all gone. In fact, there's not a church today in Philadelphia. There's some churches in a couple of the seven churches that we've looked at, but all the saints are gone. In fact, this is one of the rare occasions in church history where, for the most part, the blood of the saints become the seed of the church. Muslims in Turkey have just literally annihilated God's people. One brother wrote me from our Hilton Head campus. He was there in Turkey just recently. And one of the churches, I better not say for security reasons, but there's 30 believers in that whole city of several million. But for the most part, the church is non-existent in Turkey. They've been persecuted. They've been smothered. They're gone. And yet the Lord Jesus is giving some comfort here to his people that they're going to be raptured. Now, their side of the rapture is going to be different because they've been dead for a few thousand years. See, those of us who are alive at the rapture, we're going to be taken right off this earth and up into heaven. But that's only one half of the rapture. The dead in Christ, those who've been buried, which would encompass this entire church, they too will be taken up. And they will, this promise will literally be fulfilled to the church at Philadelphia. They'll be in heaven as the tribulation period is unfolding on earth. Verse 11, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one may take your crown. Now, people read that and say, well, wait a minute. It's been almost 2,000 years. What does he mean to say, I am coming quickly? Well, we hit on this in chapter 1. Your translations, some of them say soon or shortly. It's the word taxis. We get our word taxometer from it. That when Jesus comes, when the events begin, boom, 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 second coming. That's why Jesus will say in the Olivet Discourse, is recorded in Luke's Gospel, when you see these things begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He's speaking to, to Jewish people who are alive during the tribulation, and they begin to see the time of Jacob's trouble, as it's called by Jeremiah, what we call the Great Tribulation, unfold. And Jesus said, when these events happen... This is the end. It happens very, 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 very quickly. Now, just in closing, I'll only spend a minute on it. Beyond the church in her ministry, 
and the church and her master. Let's think about the church and her message. It's unfolded on three levels. First, the church is given a message of stability. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and will not go out, and he will not go out from it anymore. So verse 12 lets them know there'll be a day when they'll be rewarded for their faithfulness to the Lord. And this verse is designed again to strengthen them. Uh, we had a picture, I'm not sure we found it, but of an ancient temple that survives to this day in Philadelphia. And there are ruins there. Most of the pillars are gone. But one of the things that they did in these pagan temples is that if you were an outstanding citizen, then like in some churches where a stained glass window is dedicated to an individual, there would be a pillar that would be dedicated to you. Now, the term pillar, you've seen that term before in Scripture used in reference to people. Like three of the apostles are called pillars of the church in the book of Galatians. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, this is a city, little Athens, filled with pagan temples. You can go there today and you can see some of the inscriptions and these different pillars that were dedicated to different individuals. And if you're an outstanding citizen, you might have your name on one of them. But Jesus is basically saying, you may not be well known down here. And you may not be well liked down here. And you may not have any pillar dedicated to you. But in heaven, I will make you a pillar. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. Remember, this is a place known for earthquakes. In April, they had a 4.8 and a 5.0 earthquake in, in this very city that Philadelphia was in in the first century. And it was a place where, as I mentioned in 70 AD, was totally destroyed. And people in their temple would grab their items and go for cover. And Jesus said, it's going to be so secure, so fixed, you'll never have to flee. He'll not go out from this temple. Heidi Yoshia, in the 16th century, a, a Japanese warlord built a shrine in the city of Kyoto. And he built a magnificent temple that he spent millions of dollars, they say in dollars in his day, an incredible amount of money. And just after he completed it, an earthquake came and the whole thing toppled down. He was so upset, he took an arrow and aimed it at the statue that fell honoring this false god. And he cursed it and it was said that he said, I spent millions to build you. Could you not even look after your own temple? Well, God is looking after his temple. He overcomes, will not go out anymore. He's giving them a message here of, of stability, but he gives them also a message of security. Again, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven in my new name. These are people who have a wonderful promise. I'm going to write my name, the name of the Father on you, I'm going to write my new name. Jesus' name in the Old Testament is Yahweh when he comes as the angel of the Lord. In the New Testament, his Hebrew name is Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus. Multiple languages we could use to describe his name. We call him Jesus. They'll call him by different names in different countries depending on their language. But it's Yeshua or Joshua in Hebrew and Jesus or Jesus in Greek. But he has a new name in heaven. And he's going to write his name on you, and the name of his new city. When people die today, they go to the New Jerusalem. 
Someday that city is going to come down and set on a new earth. God's going to write your name. And you know, things that are important to me, I say to Audrey now, write my name on that so that if it gets lost, people will know who it belongs to. You're important to the Lord. And if you know Jesus, he's going to write his name on you. It speaks of security, but finally he gives them a, a message of simplicity. A message of simplicity. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not what he says to the church, but what he says to the churches. He wants us to hear this message, and he wants us to heed this message. You know, most of the problems we have, we've invented by not hearing and not heeding. Most of the problems God's people have today just come from simple disobedience. And so Jesus wants us to hear. Listen, you're not saved by perseverance, but if you are saved, the Bible teaches you will persevere. You will persevere to the end. It's a mark of genuine conversion. But he's dealing in this passage of Scripture not just with our salvation, but with our service. He wants us to hold fast to the crown. There's a reward for the faithful. Some Christians will have greater reward in heaven than others. Those who hear and heed the words of our Savior today will have great reward. Now, if you've never met him, you cannot earn your way to heaven. You can do nothing to contribute to salvation. Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe. And if you've never met him, why don't you call upon him today to save you? Now, our Holy Father, we thank you for your word today, for its truth. I pray today for someone who's listening to me, who maybe has never personally met you. Help them in simple, childlike faith to call upon the name of Jesus to be saved. Thank you that whoever will call on his name will be saved. But help us who are members of the universal church who have become members, many of us, of this local church. Help us to hear and to heed the words of your son. That this is not simply what he said to the people in Philadelphia, but what he's saying to people living here in Beaufort in the 21st century. Help us, our Father, to do some personal evaluation, to look within, to ask if we are like the people in Philadelphia. May we be to the glory of Jesus, we ask it. Amen.